What up, everyone? This is Will Butler from Be My Eyes, and you're listening to Creator Exchange. Creator Exchange is a weekly series from The Outpost, bringing together creators and artists from different areas to discuss creativity, empathy, and the different ways we're all staying fruitful and optimistic during these times of uncertainty. The idea is to see the world through someone else's eyes. For today's episode, we sat down with two legends of their respective fields, Chris Cosentino and Tony Hawk. Chef Chris Cosentino has been a fixture in the food world for years now, with his restaurants Coxcomb, Acacia House, Encanto, and most recently, Portland's Jackrabbit. His ambitious embracing of the Ophel Foods movement has garnered him accolades and won him the title of Top Chef Master. Tony Hawk needs no introduction, skateboarding pioneer, video game icon, and all-around American good guy. We discuss how they, as long-standing vanguards of their mediums, stay creative and innovative, all the while embracing and encouraging the up-and-coming youth movements, outsiders, and in most cases, learning from them. And you'll get a few skating stories from both of them. We have a great lineup of conversations coming on Creator Exchange, so be sure to subscribe, review the podcast if you love it, and check out outposttrade.com slash creatorexchange for more info. Tune into our live conversations each week and give us your suggestions for what meeting of the minds you'd like to see on Creator Exchange. Want to do more than just create? You can start by supporting our friends at Oxfam, by donating to COVID relief. Find out more at outposttrade.com slash creator exchange. And you can also download Be My Eyes, which allows you to volunteer to lend your eyesight to those who need it. Today, we have almost 4 million volunteers lending their eyes on demand 24 hours a day to hundreds of thousands of blind and visually impaired people all around the world. Sign up as an individual or company by downloading the app or going to Be My Eyes. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Chris Cosentino and Tony Hawk. Chris, you know a, a little bit more, I think, about uh, a skate about t- what Tony does than than the average uh, uh, kind of cross-disciplinary dudes. You did some skating yourself, huh? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Rhode Island and I grew up skateboarding. So as a kid, you know, the Bones Brigade was it, right? And um, there was a time when you know, everybody wanted to have the same clothes and skate the same way and look like everybody in California, especially on the East Coast. So, um, yeah, I grew up skating. I mostly skated street, some vert ramps. Not There wasn't really that many except for uh, the playground in Connecticut. And then we had, you know, Fred Smith had the big warehouse in Oneyville, next to Oneyville, uh, hot dogs and uh, Oneyville fitness system. Wieners. That's pretty OG. You're talking about vert ramps in the 80s. I got I to gotta give you credit. Oh yeah. I mean, I went to the playground, um, for sure. I used to go there. I remember seeing Neil Blender skate there, which was pretty bizarrely insane. He was just insanely crazy on the tightest vert ramp I'd ever seen in my life. It was a mini ramp with like a foot and a half of vert and he was ripping it. And then, you know, Fred built that indoor park in Olneyville and it was awesome. I mean, we get to skate the pools and, but the, I mean, and then we had the ramp, um rick quattro's had a ramp in middletown rhode island which was huge and uh they used to do all the all the alba boys used to come out and and have huge ripping contests there it was pretty pretty intense like i was way intimidated by all that like i wouldn't 
dropping in scared the daylights out of me. It's funny because when I hear people talk about their skate history, especially now, when they say back in the day, their back in the day is like 1998. Um, no, I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and that's like, historical to them. And, <laughs> and then when you hear someone like you that was skating in the early 80s, it was a totally different, just a, a different vibe, a different, it almost was like a different type of personality had to skate them because you were getting told not to do it or that it was uncool at every turn. Oh, you were getting told by, at least where I was, it was, there was the surf sector that kind of embraced it and skated when there was no waves, right? So you right. would have those dudes doing like their laid back, hand down carves on the, on the half pipe. And then you had like the hardcore skaters that wanted to, you know, learn vert. And, you know, there was dudes like Skip Rafferty and, you know, um, we had flight skateboards, AKA slash snowboards was in Rhode Island yeah. back then. And those guys were all there. And it was such a different way to grow up. You know, you were told like- very, like it was a, like a bubble of, of uh, society and cool, but outcasts. Yes, total outcasts. There was a yeah. very minimal amount of people that thought you were cool. Yeah. Yes. Do you think there's any corollary with the food world, uh, Chris? Was it cool to be a chef in the 80s? I don't know. I was a dishwasher, so I- <laughs> Was that cool? That was cool. That, I don't know. That, I was a dishwasher at IHOP. I'll never forget. And um, it was so funny to like go to work, dishwash, and then take my skateboard and go from Middletown down to Newport to go skate this area called Prodi Park. And it was like this big street skate spot where everybody had tried to ollie the rock. There was a big boulder in the middle of the park and it was like a huge deal to do it. But I, no, I think, I think the thing that was really interesting about it is that we would have to watch what Tony was doing and everybody else was doing to try to figure things out but it was, this was like pre-video. This was like step-by-steps in the magazine. I mean, that was the creative process back then, learning how to do a trick by watching the, trying to follow the photos in step-by-steps. Oh, in, in the, the trick tips that they would yeah, put. Yeah, like that was, you couldn't. I remember, you know, what's funny about those days is I remember those trick tips and I remember reading them and I would get so frustrated with the pros that did them because it just felt too lazy to me. It was like, Ollie, turn, grind, land, and ride away clean. And I was like, you're not teaching anyone anything. <laughs> so for it's those like skaters. like the most minimal effort. For those um, skaters. Funny because I, I took that, I, I took inspiration from that though, because later on when I had an outlet, one of the first things I did was I did instructional videos. Like when we first had Birdhouse Skateboards as a website, when people didn't even know how to log, you know what I mean? You, you put out a website address, HTML, people are like, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. You know, this is probably like, yeah, like 95, 96 dial up modems. Oh, yeah. And I figured out how to compress videos into tiny little files and I did trick tips. So I did it with their team, like with Willie Santos and with Jeremy Klein. And, and I've actually heard a few people you know, it was a very exclusive uh, audience, but I heard a few people recently say, hey, I learned, I learned kickflips from watching Willie on the Birdhouse site. That's cool. It was pretty cool. For those kids. But, who, but a lot of it was because of those Thrasher trick tips. I was like, no, 
Yeah, I want to give people a sense for those kids who like might not even remember a world without the internet. Like, how valuable were those magazines? Oh, those magazines were like you waited for them to show up, like, and you would bomb the shop as soon as they came in. It would be like a phone call would go out because one of your friends would work at the shop. They're like, "New Thrasher's here!" Boom, everybody'd show up. New Transworld's here, and you'd like run to you know save your <laughs> save your fucking allowance just to buy the magazine because you were so oh my god there's got to be something cool and something new in there but from my perspective as as a pro in those days and as someone who relied either on my contest placings or on my magazine coverage it was equally as important because that was the only way that you got your your name or your skating your tricks out there was either by by winning contests or by just getting into wherever they were shooting photos. You know, if you knew, if you knew Mofo, you would go and follow Mofo. Mofo was a photographer and thrasher. You would go and, and where is he going to be shooting? You know, oh, this backyard pool, like get in the session, try to get a photo. I actually have some, I actually have some dirt on you, Tony. <laughs> okay. I'm sitting, I'm sitting out in the back. I'm sitting out on the back patio of my house last night talking to my neighbor rich who was a sponsored amateur as a kid and he said 1989 i'm sitting in the frankfurt airport and tony hawk walks up and he goes oh you got the new thrasher and he's 16 years old do you remember this i don't remember this and he's like yeah you want to take a look you know 89 or something it's like 89 or something and he's like walked off with my thrasher magazine no way I just stole it. Wow. I must have been really hyped on a photo in or something. He was like, I'll never forget the moment. No, he was stoked. I feel like I must have asked for it. You, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I it's have all right. The funniest things lately, have, well, has been your travel issues, Tony, where like, is that your skateboard? Like all the comments that people- Oh, all the time. All that, yeah, people, people think that I'm making it up at this point, but it's just, it's the real thing. The interactions are real. I actually had one the other day at a grocery store with a mask on. Um, and this person behind me in line, no, it was, a, it was a girl that worked there. She walked by and she's like, and she leans in with her mask. She's like, am I tripping out? I go, well, I, <laughs> that wouldn't be for me to say. I don't know what you mean by that. And she's like, are you, are you, you know, are you who I think you are? And I'm like, I, I don't know who you think I am. And then she just looked at me and she's like, and then walked away. How, how, how is your, and I really like, I don't know how to share that online. Cause it was, it was just so like, it was such a visual interaction, but yeah. it still happens. How does your approach to that changed over the years? I don't, I, I guess at some point I grew up as a, like a skinny outcast kid that skated. Skating was the furthest thing from cool you could do when I started. And so I got used to just doing my thing. I never thought it would be a future in it. I never thought there'd be fame or fortune in it. I just really loved what it provided me and um, my sense of self-confidence. And so at some point I started getting recognized and that was super awkward for me. That was like, I didn't know how to react. I felt awkward in my own skin. And then I have these kids looking at me like they're expecting me to say something, you know, <laughs> something magical or, or philosophical to them or inspiring. And I'm just like, what do you, what do you want? I don't know. 
And so at some point I learned to, to engage and to interact. And I realized, I realized how important that was to the kids that were looking at me. You know I mean? Not, it wasn't like some marketing scheme. It was more like, Oh, and also I had experiences in my day with pro skaters that were total dicks. And, and that's seared into my memory. It was just like, Oh, I never want to be that person to yeah. the kids. And so at some point I just embraced it and realized that, you know, just a high five or like an interaction or asking about what they're doing goes yeah. so far. And that's what they'll take away forever. Like, you know, like this, <laughs> your friend at the airport, like, what does he remember about me? I took his thrasher. I'd like it to be a little more positive than that going forward. It's the, it's the one, uh, it's the one negative story about it. No, no. He was staying in the, in the dorms, I think with some other pros, there were, there were thrashers aplenty, but it's a, but I think, oh, I think, you had like, I know, like you never know what you're gonna learn from that kid too, right? Like just right. because you're more well known doesn't mean there's something to take from this young kid um, who's doing something maybe a new way or has a new attitude or approach. Oh, for sure. We're all trying. We're all look, you know, inspiring each other, looking for new techniques. Um, and if nothing else, like skating is is an art form as much as cooking can be an art form where you can take the same trick and two people do it, it looks totally different. Or take the same dish, two people do it, they're both different, they're both great, but they're, they're you know, there's signature moves. And you could take a photo of someone, like a pro skater, silhouette them, and I can tell you who it is, just by the style of, of how they look. That is, I think that's a really, really interesting point that you just make because you could always tell the way someone skated by their style and you can tell right. the way people play who it is it's very really? similar. oh yeah you can just totally by the presentation presentation plate ups are they doing Pretty the cool. swoosh or is it like super rustic is it like you know like there's it artsy fartsy is it super tweezery is it like everything has its time and place and i think there's definitely like skating is based off technique, right? You know, there, there's technique to learn a trick. And I, I like to say cooking is like having, you know, you have to have legs to stand on. It's like, you can't run around the, the block with your dog twice and say, tomorrow I'm going to run the marathon. It just doesn't work. Somebody's not going to show up at your ramp and drop in and be able to bust out a McTwist in like two tries. It's just not going to happen, right? Without practice and learning the techniques and perfecting skills and building and layering on them. It's the same thing with food and flavor in, in cooking. And I think we build everything off of technique and I try to build off of history and then work from there. So the techniques I take are historical, the dishes I take are historical, and then I try to torque them and make them in a new, more maybe modern way or less rustic or maybe more rustic and, and try to have more fun with it. Where I think that's what skating at least did for me well, one of the many things it did for me, it's like one, it teaches you to never quit. You always get up. Like how many times have you hit the deck trying to learn something new? It's just forever. It's okay. like, Still every day. That's, that's, that's the end ever ending process, but that's, that's how we improve for sure. Yeah. It's an involvement of things. Like, you know, we burn tons of things. I make a ton of bad dishes and they don't ever make it out to the guest. And I think that's part of that evolutionary process that makes it so much fun, you know? Like we get to ebb and flow and tweak and learn from each other. And I learned techniques from Japan on how to work with fish better, but then I use it in a different 
I don't cook Japanese dish. Right. I use the techniques for maybe an Italian inspired dish of crudo or something. It's funny you say that from Japan because the the skate trick that people a lot of people know about is, is called a Japan Air. And the reason it's called that is because there was an article in Transworld Skateboarding in mid 80s and it was just a travel article about Japan. And there was very few people skating in Japan, but there was a picture of this guy doing a mute air and like leaning his legs out. And we had never seen anyone do it like that. I mean, for him, it's just a mute air. But for us, it was this whole new trick and this tweak. And the title of the article just said Japan with that, that picture. And so from that point on, we're like Japan air. Like we didn't know, we didn't know the guy's name was cause it was all, the, the article was in Japanese. So we didn't know who he was. We didn't know how the picture came to be. We just knew that if you twist a beauty like that, it's Japan air. Did anybody ever figure out who he was? At some point, someone, someone tracked him down and he was actually this expat from France that lived in um, Japan at the time. Oh, that's crazy. So, I think the thing that, go ahead, Chris. One of the, I, I was curious is, you know, you, you do like Andy McDonald, I knew Andy back in the day, used to skate the Water Brothers ramp. That's where I met Andy. And you do killer, you know, double sessions with him. How? Just a couple hours ago, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was actually trying to watch it in my car as I was driving back to my house from the restaurant this morning. Um, how much are you learning from your riders, right? And how much are you learning still from your peers? Are you guys just constantly pushing each other? Like, is, that, is there still that ebb and flow like it was back in the day? Or yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely it's a different technique for guys like Andy and me because we're older. We you know we're not trying to take crazy risks. We're not trying to break records of spinning or height or anything. So we start to tinker with these techniques that we picked up along the way, and the inspiration from the new generation that's just like, wait, did you see how he did that grind? Like, how did we never think of that? And so this kind of stuff that we're we're dabbling with is more low, low impact, less risk, but, but more uh, technical and tweaks. And just the other day, like he and I were sort of daring each other to try this one thing where we're sort of dancing around on the coping as we grind. And we both figured it out, did it once, got it on video, never again. I mean, so much of so much of this stuff, like I think what's fascinating about skating is it's so new. So much of it is just pushing technique forward over and over and over again. Um, but food is like food has been around forever. Right. Uh, cooking as an art form and like or, or for a while, at least like what is a food equivalent of like the, you know, the the barefoot McTwist in, in, in Drasher or whatever, you know what I mean? What, what are some moments that, that you think about Chris? You know, I think that there's with food. I mean, I have, I'm surrounded like here. I'm sorry. Hang on. You're surrounded by chickens. Look, co- uh, uh, yeah, roosters. Yeah. Behind me. That's, Oh, there you go. You're just trying to look smart. Those are all cookbooks. <laughs> I'm surrounded. Oh, you read bro. I, I know how to read. It, it took me a while. I'm keeping it real over here. This is what I do. <laughs> See, that's what you do. And this is part of what I do. So it basically goes back to, you know, everything's been ultimately done in cooking. Um, you start looking at all the old historical books, you know, like 
avocado was called an alligator pear. Um, you know, Tetrazzini was created in San Francisco. Green Goddess created in San Francisco. Tetrazzini was created because there was an opera singer. They made a pasta with cream and chicken and wild mushrooms. So it's like, you start to look, and everybody now, of course, knows it as turkey Tetrazzini. You have it after Thanksgiving and it's pretty bad, right? Let's be honest. So when you start to look at food, there really, there is a lot of creativity involved, but I think the people that are really pushed it, pushed food to the next level was Ferran Adria at El Bui. You know, and there are chefs out there that are continuously taking that creative force and driving it. Like, you know, Tony and I have a mutual friend, which is Michael Voltaggio. The brothers, Michael and Brian, are both very, very forward thinking when it comes to food. And they can take something and really reinterpret it and make you rethink it, rethink what it is in front of you. And I think that that is what's really powerful. Like every time I eat with Michael or Brian, my eyes are, are definitely opened up. It gives me a whole new thought process. Like, all right, I need to step back and rethink what I'm doing. But then it, I realize where I like to be and where I'm comfortable and what I like to do and how I like to push myself is different than what they're doing. It's, it's equivalent of saying, okay, you, you do freestyle, you do street and you do vert. And now there's a whole new sector, which is parks, right? Is that the whole new thing? But dude, I can't understand these guys with the stalefish McTwist with no pads. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that's well, true. I mean, but we're all, but, but even so, even though that there are these sort of distinct disciplines, everyone's getting uh, inspired by each other and, and, even, you know, even the guys that are doing the stalefish McTwists in the pools with no pads, we, we're over on the Verram going, well, maybe we could, you know, do it a little better or alley-oop or something because that's the trick that, that, that's sort of come of age again, um, which is super cool. Uh, it's funny you're talking about Michael Vitaggio. I actually uh, got invited to go to this pizza place in Manhattan with him and Bobby Flay. And I remember looking at the chef as I walk in with those guys who didn't know they were coming. And the guy's just like, wait, am I getting punked here? What is going on? Um, did, you go, did you go to Una? Is that what it was? Polifano, yeah. I guess so, yeah. He's my buddy, was he fully sleeved? Yes, yes. Yeah, super tiny spot. He used to have yeah. a place here in San Francisco. He's, he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. But I, but I, I guess I, maybe he expected it, but I could just tell the staff was not ready for that. <laughs> and everyone was just kind of like, what is going on? And then Eric Andre came in and joined us and everyone's just like, is this some weird dream? What is happening here? Yeah, that's Anthony. He's, Anthony is. Uh, pizza was insane. He, he, he delivered. Next level. Uh, when he left San Francisco, I felt like that was a really hard hit for us here in the Bay Area when he left. Great guy. Yeah, but it's more opportunity for you, right? <laughs> I don't know. He's different, man. Like what he does, he's an art form. Like he used to ride his bike from Sausalito in, make the dough, ride home, and come back in with his wife to do dinner service. Like the man is. Wow, that's awesome. He, he lives, breathes dough. It's like when he's out of dough, the door shuts. <laughs> that's cool. And I love that. And I think that's what's so great. I mean, food is such a powerful medium and it transcends all boundaries, right? Like family feuds, politics, religion. I mean, think about Thanksgiving, right? Everybody sits down, everybody calms down, food hits the table, people talk. But I think that like 
how it's evolving and changing every day. Like if I watch Michael and Brian or eat a dish with Michael and Brian, I try to figure out how can I pull a component of what they're doing, you know, to elevate what I'm doing that's rustic without trying to be exactly like them. And I think that's what's really, really cool about how you can do the same thing. Like seeing, I saw a kid do a step hop in the vert on the pool or what do you call it? No comply back in the day. Right. Is that you got it? You're on it. (laughs) So like I never, I could have never thought that that would work, you know, no comply to tail slide. Right. So that, that's a, that's another thing where it's like, there's this generation of kids that grew, that have grown up riding skate parks and little ramps and they figured out that they can no comply into tricks and then they take it to our realm, the vert ramp, and we're all just standing there like, what just happened? How do they do that? I still like, I, I've tried. I, I wreck my shins even on an attempt doing that. Back, back when you were, you know, when it was the crew, right? The original, the Bones Brigade crew, and it was like you and, and Rodney and Lance. And how much influence did you guys have on each other? I mean, I know Rodney change street skating let's just be honest if i don't the world wouldn't be what it is now with oh no he's the godfather of yeah modern street skating for modern sure street um, skating. Like, but you we always well rodney and i it was a different relationship with us because our disciplines are so different that he and i would just take cues from each other where i saw him you know before kickflips were invented he flipped the board with his hand and so i was like well i got plenty of air time maybe i could figure out how to do that and then i that's how i'd learn to do finger flip and then when i learned air walks he was the only guy that could do flat ground ollies for the most part at the time so he figured out how to jump in the air and do an air walk off the ground and and that's how like that was our relationship is that we were just inspiring each other without even really speaking about it with the other guys um we were all just trying to stay relevant (laughs) you know what i mean and 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 really not trying to outdo each other but just trying to prove ourselves because we were on what was supposedly the most elite team and so we constantly had to to outdo what we had did before and that's why stuff like mcgill did the mctwist cab did the caballario i did 720 um you know and lance had all these these hand plant variations and we knew that we were expected to keep pushing ourselves. What about your relationship with food? Like, I'm sure not all skaters are fine food enthusiasts, you know, fine dining enthusiasts. Like, how has that- I, I wasn't, your- I honestly, while I was growing up, my, my dad was, uh, he was in the military, he was in the Navy. Our big outing for going out to eat was Bob's Big Boy in San yeah. Diego, um, yeah. you know, gourmet food was just not even really a consideration um and then at some point i started traveling and just even though it was scary to me and it was weird and everything was different i started to embrace it because it became a big part of my life i mean still is well after you know once we are traveling again um and so i started to really enjoy the different flavors and realized that at some point i have this well, for one, I have the income to be able to afford the, the, the finer establishments. And then suddenly I realized that I had, a, I had an in with my name to get reservations. And then that was it. Like, I went crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, for real. That's good, dude. I got to say, that's, 
So I've got a buddy here who lives in the Bay Area. His name is Greg uh, Coons Carmel. Um, you came to town. I went to Catonia and he was like blowing up my phone. He's like, bro, you got to come over and come hang out in the kitchen with us. I'm like, man, I'm in the middle of fucking service. I'm not leaving the restaurant. It's <laughs> <laughs> show here. Like, you deal with it. But yeah. That- so my first, my first um, experience was that was getting, uh, getting a reservation at French Laundry. Not... Not in a short time, but not in the time when they were, you know, it was like, you got to make a reservation three months out. And I was maybe three weeks out and just kind of, you know, asked and got a reservation from my brother and I, cause he lives up there. And that was my first hint that was like, wait, this is way different. And now it actually kind of drives my wife crazy. The first thing I do when we go to a new city is check restaurants yeah. you know, before we leave or, or, or make reservations. And then I took her to Paris once and that was kind of the breaking point. Cause she's like, I'm not having a tasting menu for lunch. <laughs> Just we're spending all our time in restaurants. It How about cook? Do you cook? Do you cook? No, not at all. I, I let, I'll let you guys, you guys are the experts. I'm not, I'm not jumping on that hobby. <laughs> Basic skills are good, but I definitely think, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I, when I travel, it's the same thing. My wife and I, we go wherever we are. It's always about, okay, lunch and dinner, lunch and dinner. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, we've, we've come to it. We've come to a happy uh, agreement with all that. <clears throat> so if we can find a place that does tasting menu and a la carte, that's the best of both worlds for us. That's I'm cool. wondering like, like um, from a creative perspective, like, you guys have these things that you love doing, right? That you're super focused on a lot of the time. But I think one thing you've done so well, Tony, is like um, building everything around it, all the projects around the actual act of skating um, that have allowed you to have this be sustainable long-term. And I, and you know, looking at, you know, um, looking at Chris, who's just cooking, cooking, cooking and building the businesses, but, you know, and has also had these TV projects, like what uh, maybe, advice would you give from one creator to another about like how to maintain that balance of creative and business? Well, and I, for me, it's just always been more intuition. Like, will this product or this uh, campaign fit within skateboarding or can we, you know, can there be some synergy? And sometimes no, sometimes um, surprisingly yes. And I think that I learned that when I got to do big promotions, like I got to do Doritos and I got to do McDonald's and got milk. And I realized that I was able to use their marketing dollars to promote skateboarding in general. And that was, that was a big shift for me. Um, But in terms of doing other like ventures on my own, it's just more what, what would be fun and what could you be passionate about? And sometimes it is, TV projects and and sometimes those are super fun and like I, I totally appreciate that you want to take on those challenges and and I think that if you are truly passionate about it, you're not doing it just because you have to I mean there's a lot you know there's a lot to be said where it's just like oh I gotta churn out another show and the audience can feel that <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean and so if you're if you're still doing it with the same passion and vigor um it shows and and i think that's that's what it is it's like you know just so many unlikely people become tv stars from doing a random craft 
because their personality is such that they're just excited and they're yeah. excited to learn new stuff. How have you balanced that, Chris? Like being on reality TV with just trying to do this thing you love? You know, I mean, originally it getting on TV was, I wanted to compete in Japan, you know, on Iron Chef. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like that was the only <laughs> competitive thing. Like I grew up very competitive with skateboarding and then cycling and, you know, Iron Chef was it. Like we used to bomb into this Japanese uh, bar and watch Iron Chef only in Japanese and have the bartender who was getting completely knackered tell us what was going on and translate it for us in broken Japanese half drunk. And we would be like 12 cooks in there screaming and yelling at the TV like, battle lettuce? What the hell are you going to do with six courses of lettuce? You know, like freaking out. And then the chance came. And then it just, it kind of spiraled from there. Like it was like, okay, go on Iron Chef, battle, then compete on the next Iron Chef to become, and it kind of spiraled from that, but it ended up, the, the, I ended up stopping television completely because it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And um, I went back when there was an opportunity to do Top Chef Masters specifically because there was a charitable component to it. Um, I had the opportunity to compete for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's research which for me is, is really, really important. Uh, my grandfather, uh, excuse me, my uncle had Parkinson's, so I wanted to do something really important, you know, and give back. And there was no drama involved with that. It's literally go and cook. And if your cooking wins, then you win money for a charity. So you're being ultimately judged by your skill set, not how many times you can swear at somebody else or be a jackass or, you know, and that's not what I wanted to do. So. Um, but there is something to be said for for accepting the challenge beginning and, and realizing that that could be a springboard to other stuff. Yeah. And maybe sure. you don't want to be stuck in it, but, you know, maybe that's the spark. It's like when something goes viral, like, what are you going to do with it? You know, you, you can't just, you're not going to cruise on that. Yep. You got to keep producing. And I think that's, and then that's how I kind of ebbed and flowed. You know, we have Coxcomb, we opened three other restaurants and then I started a podcast and, you know, I've been doing some, my own videos with cooking online and it's just, I think it's really just about communicating the craft of cooking, which is what I love so much and really giving people the skill set to be able to cook at home, even though Tony, you don't want to cook at home, but that's okay. I, 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 let's say I've learned enough basics. I have so many children, but I've learned enough basic skills that I can get by. In fact, I just did a, Instagram live thing with my friends at Ghetto Gastro, and I taught them how to make an egg and cheese bagel in five minutes, and they were actually impressed. I was pretty excited. Cool. How, how many kids do you have? Uh, between my wife and I, we have six. Wow. Um, most are oh most are of adult age, but um, three were in college before all this happened, and now they're almost all back with us which has been wow. really weird because a full house right now. We were almost empty nesters. Yeah. Well, not my oldest son. He's uh, he's 27. He lives on his own. He does his own thing. Um, he has a coffee shop here in Oceanside, but uh, we have four full time at the house and it's been way different. <laughs> <laughs> one actually in college. So one, one's in Boston, still in college, even though he's online. 
he just, he, that's where his homies are and that's where he wanted to get locked down. I'm wondering about like um, outsiders, right? Outsiders to the craft, like, um, you know, for those that don't know, I, I've been losing my eyesight for many, many years. That's the whole point of Be My Eyes is so that you can be somebody else's eyes via your smartphone. But like Tony, you shared um, links from our friends in Spain, this blind skater, the blind rider. Um, yeah. And, um, and there've been examples in cooking too. There was a top chef uh, contestant, uh, Christine Ha, who is also blind. And I'm just wondering like, thinking from a, the most outsider perspective, you know, what can we learn from looking at these people who are competing in a highly visual field who most people probably think would never succeed in their achievements? What can we learn from them, Tony? Uh, well, I think that you can overcome any challenge. And really, if you set your mind to it and ignore anyone that's going to be naysaying or telling you not to do it and just believe in yourself, you can make it happen. I mean, I've seen... Well, you know, a small example or a big example these days are, are women in skateboarding. Like they were just really such the, the the smallest population, the least amount of support. And now they're they're blossoming. Um, and I have seen some skaters who are blind learn to ride through feel. And it's inspiring to anyone. Um, there's actually a guy outside of Detroit named Dan Mancina. Oh yeah, Dan. Dan's yeah. Um, but I interviewed this kid. I interviewed this kid about 10 years ago, maybe more. Uh, Tommy, I don't remember his last name, but he was he he had some sort of um infection or something where he lost, he literally lost his eyes. So he had yeah. uh he had glass eyes. And he did this one trick where you'll appreciate this, Chris. He, he would always do stuff to backside revert. And the scariest thing about backside yeah. revert is that you can't see. You can't see it. Your head has and to whip right? I, I realized after watching him, I'm like, we well, can't see anyway. Everything's scary, right? So what does it matter if he's doing backside yeah. revert? And great. he's fascinating. Like, and so I did this little interview with him for our website back then. And at one point he was, I was talking about his eyes. And I said, well, how did they, you know, how did you get him to fit? He's like, oh, they're all custom. You want to see him? Sure. Boop. Here you go. Just puts him in his hand. Yeah. Oh, great. The blind people love doing that shit. Well, that's what I'm saying. But but also when you see all those guys, it's just a, you know what I mean? It's just like a, a it's part of their life. They don't think of it as something crazy that you'll be that impressed by because they live with it every day. Um, but it's well, we, so inspiring. We do it for the same reasons, right? Yeah, exactly. We, same reasons. We do it for the exact same reasons. And you never know where you're going to have an advantage actually as a blind person, like, even if it's, maybe you're camping and someone's flashlight goes out and you're like, I got this. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's, there's simple stuff like that. Oh, and also you... just to navigate by sound is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, that's what Tom, Tommy said. He was doing a lot of his stuff with echolocation at the skate parks. Yeah, really? it's, 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 it's a real thing. I mean, it's not superhuman stuff. It's stuff that anybody could do if they took the time to focus or if they had that need, you know? Right. What about in cooking, Chris? Like, can you imagine being a, a chef with no sight? Uh, I mean, it, I can't imagine having to do knife work in a kitchen without yeah. I mean, there would be, of course, you would make some alterations. You would have, you know, a guard for your hand to hold the vegetables or the meat that you're going to be cutting. 
but there are components of being blind that enhance other senses, the sense of smell and your sense of taste and your sense of sound. So you're going to notice things that others around you won't notice. So, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a scare factor of having yeah. to cut something with a knife, right? Yeah. Which could have a pretty serious accident. But yeah. that being said, it, it, people put their mind to it and they do what they want to do. Like, yeah. And sighted people have those same accidents all the time, right? Oh yeah. Trust me. I've got a million. You, you could right. get a million cuts in my hand. I, I was, I was cutting strawberries this morning for my oatmeal and I was thinking, I do not do this the way chefs do it. And I, I <laughs> can't figure out how they bend their fingers so precisely and do that. It's you just, you know what, this is, you know, it we'll becomes, get you a hand guard. It becomes the claw. Your hand. Yeah, my strawberries are too small. I can't, I don't know. I was, I was, I was cutting it like, I'll never be a chef. I can't, I can't do the thing. <laughs> it's it basically, it's the same thing. Like same thing I would say, trying to skate. It's a practice over and over again. Yeah. The more you do it, the more you learn it. And I think with somebody who is sight impaired, I mean, you can learn the skill, but it's making sure that, you know, the cuts are consistent and that's what they're looking for. You know, I think it's a pretty amazing thought process to like, I've seen the videos of, of these guys that you're talking about skating using a, a sight stick, I was blown away. Like, yeah. I shot a video of Dan in Detroit doing a, like he walked up to a ledge, kind of scoped it out with his stick, went back and then went up to it and did a 50 50 on it. And he, you know, as far as he knew, no one was even watching. And I was shooting video because I was fascinated. And then I posted it and it just went viral. Like it went crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. A lot of people don't realize, I mean, I'll get on my high horse, but a lot of people don't realize that the cane, I'm a white cane user. It is an incredible tool. It's like as cool as a skateboard or some other thing. It's just people associate it with something sad and they don't realize what an amazing device it is. Right. Is that, what about when you're out in the wild? You, there's like different attachments you can put on there. Like there's ones for like grass and snow and like, yeah. Oh, really? wow. See, yeah. See I'm learning I, something, man. I like this. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I, we'll have to introduce you to Christine Ha too. I mean, she's an incredible chef and, and like just to show people that like cooking skills, those knife skills, all those things are possible is a really, is a really amazing thing to open people's eyes to. And just like you're saying about like women in skating and all these groups that have been iced out in the past, it's like, there's room for everybody, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, you know, there was, there was one, it's really interesting that the early, early days of skateboarding, there were, you know, it was the, the freaks of the freaks. And there were a few people, like there was one guy that was deaf. There was one guy, I mean, and, and we're talking about a very small group of competitors one guy was deaf. One guy had no legs. Joe Hardy, who I looked up recently. He's now like a successful drummer. Um, wow. And there were literally two girls in all the competitions. And, and we all just, we all felt marginalized and disenfranchised anyway. So that became our family. And so like the Mute Air, that was created by the, the only deaf skater back then. It's, it's, it, I didn't realize that. I had no idea that there was a, there was a history there. 
There's a Deaf Pizzeria in San Francisco, right? Chris? They're they're, uh, they're opening another one in uh, uh, in DC as well. Yeah, so you go so in. Everyone that works there is deaf. Everyone and the owners, yes. That's everyone. pretty cool. It's wow. amazing. They and the the pizza is really good. They do a great job. They're super sweet. They go to um, all the big festivals and bring their big truck and throw pies and they're awesome. Oh, that's awesome, man. Wow. And we yeah, can't let go ahead. I think one of the things that I thought was, you know, for me has been really amazing is watching Tony push so many different groups of people and broadening skateboarding to so many. And I think that that's been really, really important. You know, not only have you really inspired so many women to get on the board, um, you know, you have Lizzie, you have that young lady that was, uh, what's that girl, little girl's name that was? Sky Brown. Yes, she's yeah. been. You know, but you've inspired so many. Who's the gentleman that um, that is, I believe he rides for you. Um, he doesn't have any legs. Oh, Felipe, Felipe Nunez. I mean, it's just, it's inspiring so many people to look at the skateboard and say, hey, you know what? I can try this. I can do this. Yeah. I don't, and, and I think that's that's what's really great about it. I think the skateboard kind of equalizes everybody. You know, you're oh, all- Oh, for sure. You, you can't fake it. You can't buy your way in. No, you're, you yeah, got about- You can't be trained into it. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's, it, it is a dysfunctional family in a way, you know? It's like yeah. everybody goes, they do their thing. Everybody, you know, you can dress the way you want, you can be the way you want. And it ultimately boils down to how much fun you're having with your friends. Yeah, well, also it, it all, it's, it's all a matter of what you contribute and do you walk the walk? No one cares what your background is, what your color of your skin is, what sex you are. It's just like, here, here's the, here's the thing. What, can, what do you got? Can you do it? Can you, can you do it? Yeah. Or, or what can you yeah. contribute? Like if you're a super good video guy, then that's your skill. It's people it's in the comments want to know your favorite skaters. I can't let you guys go without talking about them. Uh, well, the, the first skater that ever really inspired me was Steve Caballero because he was super small at the time and he was young and he was doing airs out of pools with elbow pads on his knees. And I was like, that guy's my size and he can fly. I want to do that for sure. Um, and then uh, Eddie Alguera later on because he was like the only guy that was really trying new tricks because tricks were considered robotic and uncool and I was uncool and robotic anyway so I wanted to learn his tricks um and then of course Rodney Mullen I mean you know I'm talking about like a, a Mount Rushmore here but uh Rodney Mullen changed everything what about you Chris uh Rodney Mullen for sure um I was actually I got to meet Rodney uh, a couple of years ago um Super, super chill i was my wife's looking at me going he there, he's standing right behind you he's trying to get your attention turn around i'm like what oh, oh shit you know super cool guy <laughs> i was like oh shit it's Roddy mullen um neil blender for me was always you know super fun um i gotta tell you i, I heard you talking about neil earlier and i'll let you, i'm gonna let you finish but okay. uh neil created so many skate tricks that some he never even did. He just had the idea where it's like, oh, someone like the ho-ho plant, right? Neil was like, some, someone's got to figure out how to do an invert and then put the other hand down and then grab it an eggplant. He couldn't do it, but he was just this super creative genius and it took someone else to figure it out. Ideas guy. What about the woolly mammoth? 
I mean, he invented his a fair share of tricks for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah now. I, I knocked myself out trying to do that one. <laughs> yeah, I would. <laughs> I would knock myself now trying to do it. I was like, I'm going to try this trick. Boom, out cold. Uh, <laughs> Nottis, Cavas for sure. Oh yeah. Uh, and Tommy, you know, Tommy Guerrero has always been, you know, one of those guys. Just the bombing of the hills has always totally blown me away. Um, I actually live not too far from where he grew up. I can actually throw a stone and hit his mom's house from where I live right now. Um, and he's Lance, a city boy. He's proud, so proud. Oh yeah, San Francisco for life, for sure, for sure. And uh, and Lance Mountains just joy and fun level. Yeah, you know, yes. Yeah. That big shit-eating grin was just in his laughter. Just, just still, yeah. it's like it's amazing, and I think that's there's so much about it. I mean, there's so many different styles of skating in so many different ways, and it just everybody has their time and place and their moment and their thing, and you know, there's like watching Sean Sheffy backside 180 an entire fun box at a skate contest, and the and basically everybody stopped dead and was just like. Did that really just happen? That was like he backside 180 over a car. Like that was huge. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knew what to expect. Like, where did that come from? Like, where where what? Like those moments are like ingrained in me from from being able to Yeah, it was uh, it was funny. You talked about Nottis. Um, my wife was going over some of her old like she she was from Detroit, but went to college in Tucson. And she was showing me that whenever she would go to a concert, she was like the smaller girl up front and so she'd always grab the set list and so she had like a set list from x in 1980 i don't know seven uh set list from firehose and i said you know the reason skaters know about firehose because of nodis and then i showed her that nodis part um on was wheels of fire streets of fire yeah and he skates to firehose and that i mean you talk to skaters especially ones that the group in that era they can name every trick as it happens in the song yes. you know and and he did the fire hydrant spin fire hydrant spin classic and it was like that was a game changer absolutely he brought this music to us he brought these these techniques and it was like like he had he had a time machine <laughs> i want to yeah i mean we could we could do like a whole uh we could do a whole other hour just about music right but but i want to like, what was your relationship like with music, especially when you're talking about the video games and stuff, Tony? Like, were you were you involved in that process, or or has music always just been it, something that you kind of let the musicians handle? Well, music was a big part of skating when I was growing up because it was so linked hand in hand with punk rock, and the attitude was like, just do it yourself. Pick up an instrument, make some noise, yell into the mic, you know, tell us how you feel, and that sort of, I don't want to say angry, but, but that energy was really contagious and it fit right in with skateboarding's do it yourself, like hop the fence, skate the backyard pool, get out. And, uh, and so my soundtrack was uh, to skating and skate parks was punk music. It was like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys and Sex Pistols and, and X. And, and, and when I had the chance to do a video game, one of the first things I wanted to do was to bring that, that sound because that is what I identify with skating. We didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't know if it was going to change anyone's perspective on music or inspire anyone. And then Activision had 
uh, music team because they did licensing for other games. And so they brought in the newer stuff. So the stuff like Millencolin or Goldfinger, that was more on their end because that was like the newer punk rock. But um, I loved it. You know, I love that I got to bring the Dead Kennedys to a whole new audience. Like, that's insane to me that people can quote police truck. <laughs> Every word. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's, I lost, lost the whole years of my life playing Tony Hawk. Oh, well, thank uh, you. It's, a, it's an incredible thing that you did for the music community, even just what you did for the music community. Um, what about in cooking? Uh, like, Chris, like, has your relationship, you, you go into a kitchen, you know, at a restaurant, like, oftentimes, I don't know if it's the case in fine, finer restaurants, there's music blasting back there. Like, people are getting fired up with music, right? Yeah, I mean, prior to service, we have, our kitchens are open. Uh, in in well the main coxcomb uh restaurant is completely open so whatever the guests are hearing in the dining room we're hearing in the kitchen and i've created all those old like i have a mix of stuff in there that's really about i want to look across the dining room and see guests bobbing and getting into them not only their meal watching the other guests around them and the staff i want it it creates a hum right and i think it becomes pervasive, not only through the guests, but for the front of the house staff and the back of the house staff. And it just creates this awesome relationship, you know? And, and a lot of that is a mix. Like I have old Dayla in there and I have, you know, some Jane's Addiction. And I mean, it's just like stuff's all over the place. And the music changes volume wise and stylistically as the night goes on. So starts a little mellower earlier and gets a little ramped up. And then, you know, towards the end of the night, when we want people to leave, we play the greenskeepers, the lotion. So that usually gets everybody out of the bar pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> Not closing uh, time. Not the cliche closing time. No, I'm like, let's play the lotion. People will figure it out pretty quickly. And after the first time, nobody got it. The second time, everybody was like, oh, my God, this guy, there's something wrong with this dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. Yeah, if I ever hear anything that's offbeat at a restaurant, it's one of the things I remember vividly about it. Yeah, it's really, and it's tough too, because you know, now everything is so Wi-Fi orientated. So yeah. if you get a windstorm and all of a sudden your music goes out for a second, every, the whole dining room like looks around like, What's Oh yeah, out? yeah. What do they do? Did how, somebody yeah, how, switch? How, are, how are kids grabbing it? Like they can't grab like a track for their skate video anymore the same way off of, off of the streaming service, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's one of the greatest things about the, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the evolution or the revolution of music and that it became online is that people will discover it easily, find it easily, you know, Shazam it and make it their own, like make their own edit to it. Yeah. I'm, lo I'm still looking at our comments. We, uh, someone asked about Gleaming the Cube. Was that important to you guys? <laughs> is it important? <laughs> I mean, I mean, from it was my acting debut. Of course, it's important. From, from, oh, from, a, from a fan perspective, Chris, and then from 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 that, like as a career change, how was you know, Chris? I want to start. I want to hear your thoughts on it first. So, I mean, you got to remember, like, let's just put it into perspective. The Bones Brigade VHS tape came out. We had to rent it, right? You had to rent it from your local skate shop, and if you were late. Oh man, did you get, cause there was some kids standing there waiting for it. <laughs> yeah. Returned, right? And you knew the kid 
because the kid was over at your house watching it at your house and then you were going to his house, but you still had to get it back to the shop. It's just yeah. how it worked, right? So you had the Bones Brigade, the original one come out and then we had the search for Animal Chin, right? And then that kind of set the precedent. And then of course, Gleaming the Cube, we all went to go see it in the theater because it was skateboarding on the big screen. It was like, yeah. holy shit, where skating is being accepted into the motion pictures as something that's relevant. We're cool. We're gonna be cool. Like kids are gonna dig us, right? We're going to see Gleaming the Cube. What it, what it, what, it was what just, it was pretty crazy. It was actually pretty funny. The other day, a clip came up of, uh, I think, Tony, I think you were driving the pickup truck yep. and Christian Slater was hanging on the side, right? Yeah. And yep. he was the launch over and he landed on the dude with the gun. Yeah, yeah. And his board was made of metal and it was all broke. I saw that and I just couldn't stop laughing. I was like, holy shit, I remember seeing that. Like, like we had to go see that in the theater because it was awesome. Like, this was going to be the shit. <laughs> like, hey, what did it mean? I mean, for me, it was, I was out of high school, you know, I was already, for the most part, living the dream. Like, I was a pro skater and I was already making money. Like, I didn't, I didn't apply to a college because I realized that I was already making more than my teachers at the time. So I was just like, oh, this is awesome, you know? And then all of a sudden they said, they want you to try out for this movie. And I went with all the Bones Brigade, me, Tommy, uh, Mike, Lance, Steve. And we went to a Hollywood studio and tried out for this thing. We had no idea what we we're doing. You know, Stacy was just like, Hey man, just, just, just make an impression. That's all you can do. Make an impression, be wild, whatever. And it ended up that Tommy and I got the parts. So I was out of high school, straight to LA living in North Hollywood for like three months um, doing a Hollywood movie. I was thinking like, this is never going to end. Like, this is it. I'm living the, like, you know, <laughs> Obviously, it, it came to a screeching halt a few years later, but in that moment, it was wild. And we spent the first few weeks just teaching Christian Slater how to skate. And to his credit, he, he was there. Like, he tried, you know, he took his hits. He, he put the effort in. He was, a, he was a relatively new actor, but obviously, you could tell he was going to be on his way to stardom. And since then, we have tried to teach others actors to skate they are not having it it's not in their contract they didn't sign up for it they didn't get hired with that and like i said christian just he he went for it speaking of people that can skate that not a lot of people expect ben harper rips yeah ben harper is really good rips straight up i love ben he is one mm -hmm. of the he's a brilliant musician i like to call ben a good friend uh you know he and i've done a bunch of cooking things together um, but watching him skate, I'm just like blown away. Yeah, he 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 gets tech too. Yeah, big time. We're starting to approach uh, or re reaching time here, but I wanted to ask you as a final question before we, um, you know, before we wrap up. Obviously, times are always changing. You know, the world is always changing, right? There's always going to be a need to reinvent yourself, reinvent your style as you adapt to change. Um, any advice for those who are finding that the way that, that whatever they were doing was working three months ago isn't working right now? Uh, wh where do we go from here? Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. <sighs> well, I think right now, I, I think it's about perseverance and really um, it goes back to the idea of just never giving up, you know? Um, 
driving forward and evolving and being, don't be scared of change, you know, be open-minded to it. Um, we have a coalition of chefs right now that have a conversations about how we are going to open our restaurants and what we are going to do. And, you know, there's no bad idea. You throw everything out on the table and out of 150, maybe two will stick, but we're all collectively working together, throwing ideas at each other to try to see what is going to be the right thing to do for our staff, for our guests. Um, you know, ultimately, I'm very fortunate in my life as I'm allowed to give taste memories to people. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And I want to continue doing that for people. You know, I'm involved with somebody getting engaged, uh, a birthday, a graduation, like those are powerful moments in people's lives. And I would like to continue to be a part of those, but I have to evolve as, as all culinarians do right now and figure out how we're gonna do that to our best ability, giving the guests the best experience, still being able to give amazing hospitality without a smile, because even if we have a smile on, no one's gonna see it anymore because I got a mask. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So yeah. How, how is everybody going to know what, it, what are the, what is that term? My wife used it the other day. Smiles, smiles, mm -hmm. something smile with your eyes. I don't know how to say smiles. Yeah. She's yelling at me from the other room. I, that I, my, actually my daughter, I, right before we got on this, I took her to go get a, a sandwich and you know, we're wearing masks to go get them. And, and she's like, I wave to people and they don't realize I'm smiling. And I, I said, was you just thinking that extra too. animated yeah. with your wave. Yeah. Like this. <laughs> But I think that's, it's, it's, a really, it's a really tough thing right now for people who have been what they know as doing something a certain way. Now it's time to try going left or try going right. And yeah, I mean, that's, I think that I, I would agree in that you've got to be unafraid to step outside your comfort zone and to just expand your horizons, like try something new, learn a new skill, maybe learn something you know that that is is something of a valid occupation going forward or in the in the short time we have um whatever i mean it's all it, it all seems cliche and obvious but you do have to think outside of what you normally do if that's not going to make you a living um i did the most random stuff when i was struggling as a skater in the early 90s um i was a video editor briefly um I, uh, I did skate exhibitions in Six Flags parking lots um, for a hundred bucks a day. Like literally as people were walking into the Six Flags, we were the distraction and the show. But you know, it, it, you gotta just rethink it and it's like, but I enjoy doing it and think of something that maybe you enjoy doing and how can you maybe evolve that and, and make it a living. Great advice. And uh, I just want to thank you both for all your time today. It's been really fun chatting with you both. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having thank me. You. And uh, thank you to Outpost Trade for putting this all together. Again, um, I'm with Be My Eyes. Go download the app and see the world through somebody else's eyes and help somebody out while you're doing it. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again for Creator Exchange next week.